Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR A55 on your AM dial. Radical Philosophy is now on Twitter. You can find it by searching Rad Philosophy on Twitter and clicking follow to follow us and keep updated with the show. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. I'm Christine Overall. I'm a professor emerita of philosophy and university research chair at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Thanks so much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Sarah Mega about her book, Rape, Loot, Pillage. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Sure. Um, I finished my PhD from Melbourne University in 2012, where I had studied sexual violence as a weapon of war in various armed conflicts, but particularly focusing on the Democratic Republic of Congo. Before that, I had done my master's in international relations and did a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from McGill University in Canada, where I'm originally from. So what was it that inspired you to write your book, Rape, Loot, Pillage? Well, really, it was that I had come across, when I was trying to decide uh, a topic for my PhD research, I'd come across um, the International Criminal Court's first trial, it was a new institution of trying the worst crimes against humanity and war crimes in the international arena. And this case in the Democratic Republic of Congo against Thomas uh, Lubanga was the first case that the court was hearing. And what struck me when I started reading up on it was how despite the fact that all humanitarian reports and media reports on the conflict in the Democratic Republic of Congo were uh, focused on how prevalent sexual violence was in this war, none of the charges were related to sexual violence. He was being charged for crimes of using child soldiers or committing um, other sort of acts of, of war against civilians, but no mention of sexual violence. And that really struck me. How could we have this discord between knowing massive rates of sexual violence happening in a conflict and yet very little attention in terms of international policy or response. And that made me want to understand better not only the dynamics of how sexual violence is used in war, but also the sort of root causes and consequences of this violence and how that's understood by the international community. So just how common is rape in war 
it's really difficult to to quantify because unfortunately nobody has really systematically tried to try to reach uh, the the full scope of the problem since i would say about 2010 there's been more attempts um in different conflict zones to try and accurately capture by doing uh, mass surveys but what we've found with these attempts is that depending on how you define rape and depending on um, the the sort of reach of the people doing the surveys, it's really difficult to fully encapsulate the picture. So what most people responding to the surveys were having a hard time distinguishing was rape being perpetrated by soldiers for a strategic purpose versus rape being perpetrated by their neighbors or by their husbands, etc., and this is also a problem I find in how people have conventionally tried to understand sexual violence in war, that we tend to treat it as something that soldiers do out of a strategic purpose rather than situating it within a broader sort of context that violence becomes meaningful or useful. So what is a feminist political economy of sexual violence in war? I developed this framework for trying to understand sexual violence in war because I was frustrated by the way that the existing literature and particularly policy had essentially homogenized all forms of sexual violence occurring in war under this banner rape as a weapon of war. And there were some there were some studies that had come out that said, well look, not all soldiers rape during war, not all rape looks the same in war. And so it, it was really frustrating for international efforts to try and criminalize it and bring charges against people like Lubanga because if you couldn't tie the, the actual perpetration of rape to the strategic objectives of the person employing that rape, then it was suddenly falling outside of our purview of, of understanding it as being somehow war-related. So I developed this feminist political economy approach that is essentially a structural analysis of rape from two different, well, from a, an examination of two intersecting structures. The first is um, a political economic structure that understands how globalization has, in effect, shaped the nature of war today so that it's easier for combatants to. to loot a resource, to exploit a lootable resource uh, for their own personal gain than it is to try and control a territory through conventional governance means. They're able to loot a resource, sell it on the black market, um, get private financial gain this way. And so firstly, this structural understanding is disaggregating types of war to better understand the, the forms of violence that we see therein. And the second structure that I analyze to this approach is gender as a hierarchical structure so that it's not, it's not just enough to understand men as a homogenous group and women as a homogenous group, but look at how norms of, of masculinity within certain contexts would drive men to want to use violence in order to contest their subordinated status in the in the local social hierarchy. For example, what I saw in Congo was 
we have this economy where, despite the presence of vast mineral wealth, most of that wealth was flowing into the hands of just a few people who were able to control the, the mines, control access to the resources. A lot of men in these, in these mining areas felt very disempowered and marginalized because they weren't able to get jobs. They weren't able to fulfill their roles as men that society have expect or expect of them. Therefore, the opportunity to take up a gun, uh, join an armed group, and take over control of these mines and lootable resources offered them an alternative avenue for enacting their masculinity or fulfilling those ideals of masculinity. So when I say that we need to adopt a feminist political economy framework for understanding sexual violence in war, essentially what I'm saying is in order to understand sexual violence in war, we need to look at both the conflict itself, what kind of war it is, what's, who's fighting over what, and also what role gender is playing in informing the, the masculinities of the actors in this conflict. Who's subordinated? How is the, the perpetration of violence being used to reinforce a sense of masculinity? And it looks different in different conflict contexts. What is the preliminary typology of wartime sexual violence? So from this starting point of needing to dehomogenize or disaggregate sexual violence in war and understand how it relates to different types of conflict, in developing a preliminary typology of rape in war, I start by saying essentially what we see today are three different uh, categories of war. We've got our conventional sort of interstate wars, of which there are fewer and fewer um, since the breakup of the Soviet Union. And an interstate war is when you know one country invades another country. So you've got two government armed forces fighting against each other. More so today, though, we see civil wars as a predominant form of conflict. And rather than understanding them as all being the same or stemming from the same root causes. In my book, I disaggregate civil wars uh, along two forms, what I call ideological civil wars and economic civil wars. In the the literature on civil wars, we've noted that there has been a, a shift in the nature of war that's been caused by globalization. The way in which no longer is it necessary for armed groups to control the institutions of a state in order to have their economic objectives met, has meant that sometimes making war is actually an end in itself. It's not war in order to achieve an end, but rather create the necessary chaos or anarchy in a society that allows the armed group access to a particular resource that is lootable and they can um, exploit for private gain. That's what I call economic civil wars. But we need to recognize that there are still the very conventional form of civil war where there is an armed group or an insurgency that rises up because they want to take control of a territory, because they've got a sort of deep-seated belief, ideological belief in a cause and that they can govern better than the existing government. And this is where we see perhaps um, ethnic civil wars 
have more meaning uh, where you might have an ethnic minority group that wants to secede or um, or seize control of the state. And so understanding how sexual violence operates in war requires first understanding what the underlying motivation of that conflict is and then seeing how violence ties into those objectives or those motivations of the people perpetrating violence. And what we see in ideological civil wars is that rather than it being rebel groups using sexual violence, it's predominantly government forces or proxy agents of the government forces that perpetrate rape. Whereas in economic civil wars, um, unfortunately, it's pretty much all actors because that economic objective and the chaos being the objective, rape is really quite useful in achieving that, that anarchic context. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking with Dr. Sarah Meager about her book, Rape, Loot, Pillage. How is sexual violence used as an instrument of torture and terror? Primarily in this form of conflict that I call ideological civil wars, we see sexual violence employed by nervous states as a means of quelling dissent from an uprising or an insurgent group. So in that category of war, we're more likely to see either the state and its armed forces itself, whether it's um, the army or state security forces or police forces, using forms of sexual violence predominantly in detention centers or under conditions of imprisonment as a means of humiliating an insurgent group, demoralizing support for that insurgent group, or trying to extract information. An example of this is the the conflict in Sri Lanka where the, the Sri Lankan armed forces were by far the the larger perpetrators of sexual violence and it was usually against Tamil men who they suspected of being part of the Tamil Tigers. This sexual violence was being performed in detention centres and usually in in the form of, of sexualized torture against detainees in order to get them to give information about other suspected members of the the Tamil forces, or to admit to being um, involved in the insurgency. The other way that it can be used by governments, by nervous states against uprisings, is through the use of proxy forces or paramilitaries. So, for example, in Colombia, again, by far and away, the most prevalent perpetrators of sexual violence there were the paramilitary forces who were acting in collaboration with the state and often with the explicit consent of the state and perpetrating mass forms of violence against civilians across rural parts of Colombia. And it was more so out of a, um, a terror campaign, trying to quell the civilian population against wanting to um, support the the Revolutionary Armed Forces, FARC, or as a means of clearing land because the paramilitaries were also um, acting out of the interest of, of corporations 
in Colombia and sometimes being paid by large corporate agribusinesses to forcibly displace civilians. And in that conflict, sexual violence was really quite effective in displacing people. It was, it was the largest factor in internal displacement in Colombia. In which ways is sexual violence a weapon of war? So unlike the ideological conflicts where it's primarily um, a tool of repression, in economic civil wars, this is the category of war where I say this, this form of sexual violence as a weapon of war is more likely to be used when, it, when it's systematic, mass, and can be more directly tied to the objectives of the armed groups. It looks very similar in the specific forms that it takes to other conflicts. But when we start to uh, focus in on the actual objectives of the perpetrators, we can see how it's meaningfully distinguished from, from the other form of terror and torture. So, for example, in, in the Congo, uh, my quintessential economic civil war case study, all the armed groups were using mass systematic sexual violence and it was meaningful because it was able to sort of create the necessary chaos within the targeted society that enabled the competing groups access and control over, well, in Congo, it was primarily uh, minerals mining uh, sites. So we saw, for example, in August of 2010, the massive and systematic rape of women in villages around a, um, a mining community in the northern North Kivu province of Congo. Over a course of four days, competing groups went in to these small villages and systematically raped every single woman in the villages. Women were not just you know, raped, but we're talking about extreme, brutal forms of violence that really is about completely demoralizing, tearing apart the fabric of these communities with the intent of expelling them from that land or at least making them acquiesce to the demands of the the armed groups, which was really just they wanted to seize control of, of these mines. Oh, that's really awful. Do you do you think that sexual violence has an element of genocide? Certainly. It's less I explore this this element less in my book because it's a bit um it's it's a bit difficult to completely distinguish genocidal conflicts from from ones that are ideological or economic in motivation. We see a lot of overlap, but these were the conflicts where sexual violence were, was first highlighted to, to the international media, for example, that we first really became aware of how sexual violence can be used strategically. So, for example, in Rwanda, sexual violence played a really core act in the complete humiliation and annihilation of the Tutsis by the, the Hutus. Similarly, in Yugoslavia, in the former Yugoslavia and particularly in Bosnia where we saw the use of rape camps. The intent there was systematically rounding up women of a particular ethnic group and impregnating them with Serbian babies, as it were, 
in in an effort to in essence eradicate the, the Bosnian peoples. Its forms and functions again look very similar to rape as a weapon of war, but we we have to understand the underlying motivation as being more driven out of out of hatred and a desire to completely annihilate rather than simply terrorize or expel from land. And that, I suppose, we might see as even more sinister. And it's a why in international law we've got it as a sort of separate category of rape as well. Hmm. Could you explain about the political economy of sexual violence in the Democratic Republic of Congo? In the Democratic Republic of Congo, often referred to as the rape capital of the world, sexual violence has been a predominant feature since the outbreak of conflict in 1998. It really soared um, at the outbreak of the what's called the Second Congo War uh, from 2002. And what we see happening there is the different armed factions employing rape as a means of of gaining access to economically or financially um, valuable areas of the country. And what's happening in that conflict, as I said, I mean, we've, we have to sort of go back a few decades to understand how the, de- the economic development of that country was shaped by the dictatorship of Mobutu Sese Seko through his roughly 50-year reign, rather than nationalizing and and really making good use of the vast mineral resource wealth of the country, most of the mining contracts were were given under his reign on a sort of patron-client basis so that people paid him a lot of money for access to the resources and then um, rather than any of that resource wealth being taxed and going back to the development of the country, any money that was being wrought by the Congo out of the exploitation of these resources was going directly into the pockets of Mobutu and his inner circle. When the conflict broke out in 1998 to overthrow Mobutu, it was really out of this anger, dissent, disempowerment of the vast majority of Congolese who had been massively impoverished by this unequal distribution of wealth in the country. But rather than attempting to restore justice, the invading armed forces and the um, the government that was established similarly ran the economy to its own um, personal benefit And what we saw then is the National Army, for example, not getting paid despite these um, insurgency movements um, cropping up in the eastern parts of the country. And you have all these soldiers who are meant to be fighting for the territorial integrity of the country but are themselves equally impoverished as the people against whom they're fighting. And therefore the war really became just about who is able to exploit the instability of the conflict to their own material gain for the most part. And in that, sexual violence has been massively effective 
in creating that instability, in destabilizing the communities around these mining areas that allows the access to the lootable resources. So when I was visiting, um, I visited North Kivu for my dissertation research, and I was stunned. You expect a country like Congo that you cross into this completely impoverished country. You might have a certain picture in your head of what, what a town in that country might look like. But I was blown away by these massive glittering mansions all through the city center and people driving Mercedes SUVs and Volvos. Just the, the visible wealth on display made it all the more apparent, you know, what was actually um, happening in this conflict, right? The way that these armed, it, right down to the private level of the, the people in the government armed forces as well as the rebel groups um, being able to capitalize off of the conflict for their own personal gain. Is just taking the rape out of war enough? The Congo is a great example of why I argue that we can't understand sexual violence as something that happens in war, as if it's something that we can just stop from happening in war and letting war rage on. If we understand how the different forms of sexual violence are so tied to the objectives of armed groups in different conflict contexts, it, it isn't meaningful to try and ban one type of civilian-directed violence. Rather, I think it's, it's important to understand how all forms of violence are, exist on, a, on what, as feminists, we call a continuum of violence, and that there is a gender determinant to this violence, so that we might, we might say sexual violence is one extreme, um, but at the other extreme is, you know, sexist jokes told around a water cooler in a workplace. That it's creating a context in which inequalities, and in the case of gender, gender-based inequalities, are meaningful and the reason for which violence is happening. So that, you know, these efforts of the United Nations to try and ban rape in war or make rape a particular um, offense that we should try and take out of war doesn't meaningfully understand how war itself is gendered violence. It's about socializing men to want to act in a certain way that we see as the most valorized form of masculinity and overpower another human body and violate another human body in a way that is not dissimilar from from rape that there's masculine attributes and meaning gendered meaning in these these acts that make it essentially impossible to just excise one form of violence from the the array of or the repertoire of violence we might call it well thanks very much for coming onto the program today thank you for having me it was my pleasure and I've been speaking with Dr. Sarah Mega about her book, Rape, Loot, Pillage. And do stay tuned for the fabulous Swing and Sway.